So we've entered into the season of Lent. Those of you who joined us on Ash Wednesday, that was the official kickoff. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, and I think our scripture passage for today appropriately walks us into that season. So let's begin by reading from John chapter 13. We'll have verses 18 through 38. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What are you about to do, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he had gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Lent is a season of confession and repentance. Typically, you give up something, you sacrifice something during this time, something that you hold dear, something that you think might be a distraction to you. In our house over the past week, there have been lots of discussions over things 
that we might give up. It's actually an interesting engagement with the girls to talk about, like, what do you think takes up more of your time? What's something that if you gave up, you'd kind of miss it, but then you'd be encouraged to think about God in that. The girls, Aurora and Hannah, have chosen to give up sugary drinks. It's a big deal. No lemonade, no orange juice, no soda. Courtney has opted to give up social media. She deleted the apps from her phone, and she has already started looking at me and saying, hey, what's, uh, what's going on on there? Posted a picture of cookies that I baked, and she's like, did you post a picture? Yeah, let me see. I have chosen to give up beer and alcohol for this time. Not that hard of a thing, but uh, it's a good practice for my health, first of all. Now, you might say when the season is focused on giving something up, and in Lent we focus on this idea of death as we walk with Jesus towards the cross, and that can be a hard thing to sit in. And then you might want to jump ahead and be like, well, what about Easter? Easter is coming. Let's focus on that. Sure, Easter is coming central part of our faith, but there's really something important, I think, to be gained when we sit in the darkness, in the awkwardness, in the confusion that can come during Lent, like in the scripture that we read today, to sit in that confusion that the disciples are in. I think this is demonstrated from a scene in one of my favorite movies, Finding Nemo. Oh, hey, ma'am. Yes. When you come to this trench... Swim through it, not over it. Trench, through it, not over it. I'll remember. Hey, hey, hey! Hey, hey, wait up, partner! Hold on! Wait, wait, wait! I gotta, I gotta tell you something. Whoa. Nice trench. Hello! Hello! Okay, let's go. Oh, bad trench, bad trench. Come on, we're gonna swim over this thing. Whoa, whoa, partner. Little red flag going up. Something's telling me we should swim through it, not over it. Are you even looking at this thing? It's got death written all over it. I'm sorry, but I really, really, really think we should swim through. And I'm really, really done talking about this. Over we go. Come on, trust me on this. Trust you. Yes, trust. It's what friends do. Are you looking at this thing? It's got death written all over it. I feel like we should go through it. Trust me. When we step into difficult situations, when we go through a dark trench, situations that make us feel awkward or scared, we need to trust the one who has told us to walk through it. We need to trust the one who has walked through it himself, the one who has charted the path. In today's scripture, it invites us into the sometimes troubling nature of Lent, There's betrayal, there's denial, there's darkness, questions, uncertainty, and loss. But hopefully we will see that it is Jesus who is directing us through these elements in love and in care. It is Jesus who has charted the path for us. It is Jesus who we can trust regardless of what the path ahead looks like. And even when we're scared, when we question, when we want to go over rather than through, when we try to find another way, Jesus loves us still. And this would be the foundational truth that I would like you to walk away with, that Jesus knows the path to redemption. 
He leads through betrayal, darkness, and loss. Yet still he loves us even when we think there is a better way. The passage today opens when Jesus hinting at this betrayal that's coming. I don't know if any of you have ever really felt betrayed by a friend or let down. It can be hardest if they're close to you, they're part of your family, maybe they're within your church, from places where you're supposed to feel safe, taken care of, and supported. The church I grew up in had a significant betrayal that happened. There was a guy in our church, he was well-respected, well-liked, came to all the men's events, shared testimonies from time to time. And at one point, he invited people to say, hey, I've got this thing I'd like you all to join me in investing in. Come, help me. We'll get a return on our investment. Came to find out that years later that there was no investment. There was no money that was coming back. And many people in our church lost lots and lots of money because of this guy. A lot of people question faith. Why am I here? Why was this guy here? What's going on? A lot of people stayed at the church and toughed it out. The whole situation rocked our church and many people's trust in the foundation of the place where they thought they were supposed to feel safest. Jesus acknowledges today in the scripture that betrayal is coming and it should be expected. And I think what's important to, I, to see is that Jesus knows. We've had many signs and wonders within the book of John up until this point, pointing at who Jesus is, revealing his glory. And here Jesus chooses to point out the betrayal so that when the disciples see that it happens, he says that you will know I am who I am. Jesus chooses the betrayal as another revelation of his glory, as another revelation of his divine nature. I am, that phrase in Greek, ego eimi, I am that I am, has been utilized in John all the way through, pointing at the divine characteristics of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. But it's not a glorious example, this betrayal. It's not a miracle. It's not a deep parable or a comforting image. Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one whom I shared my bread, has turned against me. One who was close, one who has been included around the table, eaten from the same plate. Jesus hands Judas the bread even the bad and seemingly discouraging parts that Jesus will undergo and the disciples will witness are all known by Jesus. They are part of the plan, part of the path of the Messiah as hard as that seems. No matter how much you may disagree, like I think Judas and Peter in this passage, or think you know a better way, this is how it has to go, Jesus says. We've all been through those moments in life and we prefer to not go through it. I took a trip up to Tahoe recently, the last big snowstorm. Had a weekend planned up there and we decided to go down to 50 and up that way, thinking it would maybe head off some of the snow. 
But it started snowing before we got to Kyber's. And then it kept coming and coming. And the gracious chain control guys just kept waving us through with our all-wheel drive Subaru Outback. Coming around twin bridges, I could not see the road. I could not see the edges of the road. All I could see was the taillights of the car in front of me. And I wanted to turn around. But I knew the only way to go was forward. Was through. To get to my destination. But those moments when we push through, when we push through the dark times, when we follow the path that we know is the right one, those can be the most impactful, life-altering, and perspective-shifting moments in our lives. How can we choose to confront, how we choose to confront them can make all the difference. So Jesus says this in order to prepare the disciples that he knows and he's charting this path forward. And after saying that he's betrayed, he zero, zero ends on what that betrayal and who that betrayal is. I have a deep connection to the character of Judas, surprisingly. When I was growing up, the church that I grew up in um, would always do a passion play of sorts around the time of Good Friday and Easter, and somebody would play Jesus and somebody would play all the disciples. For some reason, my dad was always the one who played Judas. I don't know why, like at what point that happened. And I went up to him one time, I was like, Dad, why doesn't nobody else play Judas? He's like, everybody's afraid to. Nobody wants to play the betrayer. My dad said, but somebody has to. And I want to do that. You may have been here last Monday, Thursday, when I got to portray Judas up here. I could say my dad was passing on that role to me, and he was even interesting in that moment, the, the, what we think and feel about this character of Judas. I had the, the money bag that I threw down the middle of the aisle at the end of the, of the skit, and somebody, I think it was Kirk, picked up the money bag, gave it to Pastor Mike and said, I don't want to hold this. It's that image that sticks in our head that we don't, we don't like him. We don't want to be associated, of course, with betraying Jesus. And I think the, the moment when Jesus said this is very surprising, and I don't know if you know about the Da Vinci's fresco, that that's what he's trying to capture in his picture, is the moment Jesus says that somebody's going to betray me. And the emotion, the concern, what's going on, Jesus? You can see it in their faces. Backing off, who is it? Not me, I don't know. Jesus is troubled in spirit in this moment, it says. It would seem that this is hard for even Jesus to grapple with. This is why I love digging into the Gospels and reading about Jesus because we see moments where Jesus isn't just kind of floating above it all, disconnected from what's happening in the moment. But he's there in it. He's feeling emotions. He's right there in the moment like we've seen elsewhere in John, right there grieving with Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus. Jesus is deeply moved. Even though he knows, even though he gets it, it's hard for him to handle. Jesus points out that it's Judas hands him the bread. 
Judas was one of the disciples trusted with money even. You don't give the money to just anybody. You give it to somebody who you think you can trust. Yet Jesus knows. There have been other hints throughout the Gospel of John. John 6, 70, verse 71 says, And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And John notes, He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. John 12, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, it says. And earlier in John 13, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So all of this is swirling around the character of Judas. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And I think it's interesting then in this passage that Jesus says, it's the one to whom I'm going to hand this bread dipped into. And then he hands it to Judas, and then it says, and then Satan entered into Judas. Last time I did this, my family said, you should do that again in keeping a running gag. So here's a Bible nerd alert. Satan has a bit of a track record in Scripture. And I think when we hear Satan or we hear the devil, the first thing that pops into our mind is that like red-horned, kind of creepy but almost comical character, right? With the pitchfork and the little devil demons like crouching around his feet. But that's not, that's not who Satan is in Scripture. That's not the image that we're given. We're not really told what he looks like. We're told what Satan does. Satan is an accuser, a prosecuting attorney, if you will, against God and against people. The root word under Satan literally means accuser, one who accuses, one who charges against, not just an evil spirit or a demon, someone who's always looking to challenge, prod, find a weakness, find a weakness in the argument, question what's happening. At the core, the words and actions of Satan are not relational. They're divisive. Looking to divide and tear apart. In the beginning, when Satan shows up and tempts Adam and Eve, he says, did God really say? Gets them to question. Puts a little doubt in their minds and hearts. When Satan shows up in Job, he's questioning Job's faithfulness before God. And Satan says, but now stretch your hand out and strike his flesh and bones. Strike Job's flesh and bones. And he will surely curse your face. Satan is questioning Job's faithfulness. And in the temptations of Jesus, when Satan shows up again in the Gospels, he comes to Jesus and he says, if you're really God's son, turn these stones to bread. Jump off the temple. Bow down before me. Attempting to get Jesus to question his very identity. Satan isn't simply a character who causes us to do bad things or stumble from time to time. As the accuser and prosecutor against God, Satan causes us to question God's actions, question God's intentions, question God's goodness whenever it seems advantageous. Questioning God's relationship with us. Questioning our relationships with others. 
And I think we get a hint of the lack of relationship even amidst the disciples because when Jesus says somebody's going to betray me and when he hands the bread to Judas, the disciples have no idea. They don't know who it is. And they're surprised when Judas walks out because he thinks he's going to go on another mission to buy food for the festival or to give money to the poor, which feels a little ironic after Judas's statement when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the oil. That could have been used to, buy, to give to the poor. Judas has no idea what's going on. Yet Satan here comes to Judas, revealing the question in his heart, causing him to question the goodness of Jesus, even now after Jesus has displayed his deep love for Judas and the rest of the disciples over and over and over again. And as soon as Judas walks out, I don't think it's just a passing reference, but John says, and it was night. It almost feels like a movie scene or a play or a Shakespeare play where suddenly the the stage goes dark. Something's changed. Something's shifted. We're moving on to something else. I think John is showing us that now begins the time when darkness will seem to reign over Jesus, his followers, and the world. And the question is, can we remember the words that were given in John chapter 1? That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or like Judas, will we begin to doubt? Judas has literally left the presence of the light of the world and has stepped into the darkness of night. Judas has decided to follow the words of the accuser rather than the words of the good shepherd. One of the things we've been talking about a lot on staff and session is this book called Rare Leadership. And one of the essential parts of being a good leader is the idea of remaining relational. Even when things get hard, even when things get difficult, even when there's a disruption in the relationship, to remain in that relationship so you can work it out. Judas walks out. Judas chooses not to remain relational. He chooses to follow the questions and the accusations of Satan. I think it's important for us then during the season of Lent to ask ourselves, how have we pushed Jesus aside? How have we not remained relational and instead followed the words of the accuser? If you are the Son of God, it wouldn't look like this. If Jesus is who he said he is, this wouldn't be happening. This is not how the Messiah should be. I think I know better. But the story continues, and the hits in this passage don't stop with Judas. We get to move on to Peter. As soon as Judas walks out, Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Like I said, this is signifying a turn in the Gospel of John as we head towards the path to the cross. And it begins with this betrayal, the signature of it is night, and we're entering into darkness. Jesus tells his disciples, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. 
I almost imagine Jesus calling his disciples little children because he wants to engender in them that idea of a loving parent. And if you can imagine being a child who has suddenly lost their parent and don't know where it is, you get scared, you get worried. You start to question your place in the world and start to get afraid of what's happening. But Jesus is trying to encourage them to leave them with instructions. Even though I'm gone, here's what you can do. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When Jesus is gone, they shouldn't be like scared little children running around in fear. They should be known by their love. They should act and love towards each other and towards the world. The disciples shouldn't worry that Jesus isn't around. How they treat one another and how Jesus has shown them is how they demonstrate Jesus' impact on their lives. But Peter gives us a master class in missing the point. Jesus says, love one another. You will know that you are my disciples by your love. And And then Peter says, where are you going? I'll follow you. Peter, did did you hear the bit about love? Where are you going? I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll lay down my life for you, Peter says. Jesus is intent on following Jesus wherever he goes, doing whatever it takes, and that can be good. He says he'll even die for Jesus. Man, that's self-sacrifice. That's something that we hold in high esteem. It's a bold statement by Peter. But Jesus knows, again, the reality of the situation. Who's going to lay down their lives first here? Who's charting this sacrificial course? Peter thinks it might be him. I'm going to be the one to set the example. I'm going to be the one that people will want to follow. Peter misses that it's Jesus who is charting the course here. Jesus is the one who's going to go first to lay down his life. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later in John 15, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. Peter thinks he needs to offer his life as a defense of Jesus. I will defend you, Jesus, to the very end. And Jesus says, no, Peter, I'm going to defend you until the very end. And then you can give your life for me as an example of what Jesus has set for each and every one of us. Not because we think we know the better way, not because we think it's some great thing that we can do, but because that is the path that Jesus has gone on and that's the path that we follow. Peter has good intentions, it would seem, but ultimately bad follow-through. Peter is the ultimate overcommitting and under-delivering. So much so that it would cause him to deny and abandon Jesus. But here's the good news. Amidst the sin, amidst the betrayal, amidst the actions of Satan, amidst the disciples' self-centeredness, overconfidence, amidst even our own self-centeredness and overconfidence, We are still loved. 
We are still welcomed and invited to the table. Does Jesus love Judas and Peter even with their failures laid bare? Yes. It would seem from the example set even in this passage by Jesus, yes, he loves them. Their feet have just been washed earlier in chapter 13. They are both welcomed to eat with Jesus. Jesus hands Judas bread. Almost in a strange Lord's Supper Eucharistic fashion. Take this and eat. It almost seems like to the very end, Jesus continues to offer himself to Judas. If you would just see, if you could just understand, if you would really know what I'm here for. In spite of everything that Jesus knows, he loves Judas and Peter. And for that, I'm thankful. He loves us in spite of all of our doubting, all of the times that we listen to the accuser. He still loves us. Jesus has quoted Psalm 41. It was just one verse, but if you actually turn to Psalm 41 and read the rest of it, it says this. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up. This is right after Jesus talks about that the bread is his betrayer. Lord, raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So even in Psalm 41, we know that the betrayal is not the end of the story. That Jesus is going to triumph over his enemies. And his enemies aren't Judas and Peter. It's Satan, sin, death, and darkness in the world. He's not looking to triumph over people, but the powers that hold them down. That accuse God, that try to get people to go another way, to say that God doesn't know the right way. Peter will ultimately write in one of his own letters, 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter knows that Jesus has been patient with him. And he knows that that is the way that God is wanting to work with each and every one of us. Bo's going to come up here in a minute with the rest of the team. Yes? No? Just Bo? He's going to lead us in the song, Be Thou My Vision. In Lent, we get to step into the dark areas of our life, the scary trenches we don't want to go through, the valleys of the shadows of death, if you will, and lay ourselves bare before the Lord. But not in fear, in hope, in trust that we get a deeper understanding and experience of God's love, of his mercy, his patience, and his grace with each and every one of us. And as we sing, Be Thou My Vision, think about that, that God should be your vision, guiding you through everything that you would come up against in this life. One of the commentators, Leslie Newbegin, when I was researching this passage, said, Here is the strange paradox of the church. It is at once holy and sinful. The Lord himself is present in its life, yet Satan is also present. This is a summons to both realism and faith, 
the disciple who has understood Jesus will not be shaken by sin in the church. So hopefully today you've come to see Jesus more fully in this passage and walk away with this truth that Jesus knows the path to redemption leads through betrayal, darkness, and loss. Yet still he loves us, even when we think there's a better way. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, say that thou art, thou my best thought by day. Sleeping, I presence, I Still be my vision